public transit, which is amazing in Korea, right? So it's the first time that she has traveled internationally, first time I have lived internationally. So I pick her up and our first gate is, hey, I have this car, we need to bring it to the shop, have it worked and serviced, and then we can kind of use it and then move into our apartment. So it's June and it's like crazy humid, humid. it's like crazy humid. And so I'm, I'm in this body shop and I go to the fridge and I grab something that I think is water, right? It's a blue bottle, says fresh on it in English. I'm like, yeah, it's gotta be water. Did you ever, did you ever drink something so fast and so violently that you like, you almost purposely don't taste it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I do this and I'm like, I'm half bottle in and I put the bottle down and I taste it and then I'm like, okay, this is, this is soju. Yeah. <laughs> right. And soju, rice liquor. Yeah. It's not like it's regulated like Budweiser. Right. You know what I mean? You can expect a certain amount of alcohol per can or per bottle. But it's like I just drank half a bottle of rubbing alcohol and I'm like, all right, this is going to be bad. This is my wife's first day in, you know, a new country. Welcome to the Leading with Vulnerability podcast. I'm your host, Yuma Barnett. You guys are all very familiar with me at this point. And today I've got what I would call a special guest. Um, uh, special for a lot of reasons, right? And uh, if you're in the Ranger community, probably if you're in the Intel community at large, you know Anthony or Tony Marinello. Uh, Tony and I go way back. We served together in 175. Uh, we served together um, at a lower, lower, you know, lower positions there earlier in our career. And then we were able to connect again at third range battalion when i was a first sergeant and he was over there running the the two shop the intelligence shop um tony I, uh, tony is the greatest guy to have around your element if you're having a bad day because he'll he'll either say something stupid and you'll go "Ooh, i'm glad i'm not tony right now or he'll say something that that'll just that'll brighten you up. That'll just make your day a little bit better. And I've had a lot of those moments with Tony, especially the, our last two trips overseas where I think we spent about a collective 12 months in that, uh, in the operations facility together. And anybody who's been in an operations facility knows it's, it's not a fun time. It's pretty terrible, especially if you're the intelligence officer and we'll get into that a little bit. But, uh, before I turn it over to Tony, I just, every time I'd wake up in the morning, cause Intel officers kind of run a swing shift. They never know when they're going to work, but I worked nights. So the first thing I would do, I'd get up, I'd do my workout and I would head into the jock to work, get my cup of coffee and I go straight to Tony's desk every day. And, and he was the greatest. He would, he would, I would ask, how are things going? Right. And he knew exactly what I meant. How, how's the boss today? What's going on? Have, and he would give you the most direct straight answer, but also make you laugh about it. And I would hopefully, sometimes he had a little stress going on. Hopefully I could bring a little bit of joy to his life there for a split second when I came into work. But we had a lot of those moments for that 12 months that we spent over two rotations in the jock. I appreciate you coming on here. He's uh, since transitioned from service, hence the uh, major Chung hair and the beard. Uh, and he's working over for, for Amazon and, and doing great things. But I'm going to pass it off to you, Tony. Introduce yourself and we'll get on to the conversation. I appreciate that, Yuma. That was uh, a great intro. Um, first, thank you very much for the invite to be on this podcast. And I'll tell you, you know, between the Ranger community and people reaching out to me directly, the podcast and the things that you're doing overall is just absolutely amazing. Watch as many episodes as I can. And uh, it's been a kind of a force multiplier, if you will, for a reason for Rangers that have separated to stay together. You know, yeah. just talking about, hey, did you see Ferreter on? Did you see doc conway on did you see dave white on um and so that's been very cool so i'm honored to be on um 
especially as you reflect upon the time that we've spent together. Uh, and I've re reflected on that as well. And I remember you as a salty, salty platoon sergeant. I think our first, my first interaction with you wasn't us together. It was me watching you at an MLAT or a fixed wing rock drill. This is when Colonel Vanek was the RCO. This is, I think, like mid-2012 or so. Yeah. I was still very slick lieutenant, you know, new to the organization, hadn't deployed yet. And you stood in front of the entirety of the regiment and its enablers as a platoon sergeant and said something to the tune of, hey, we have to be ready with our vehicles. I know we get used to, to flying to target, but based in this environment, when we deploy, our vehicles are completely out of whack. They're unmaintained and we're not, and we're not trained as a force. And I was like, Okay, well, this guy knows what he's talking about, and he's willing to speak the truth to power, and they absolutely ate it up. So that's what I knew. I'm like, yeah, I got to schedule some time with this leader to learn what not to do as a young officer. So uh, that was awesome. Yeah. So thanks. Yeah. yeah. Um, but thanks for that, Tony. Yeah, I remember doing that. I was, you know, I grew up in the old. I grew up in the old ACO where we had the vehicles. So I was very passionate about taking care of those vehicles. And as the GWAT went on, some things happened, <laughs> and I wasn't happy about it. So I, I, I definitely didn't have a problem speaking my opinion there. Uh, but uh, that brings us back to your military service. I'm just curious. You know, you're an intel officer. I haven't had a lot of intel guys on the show. Um, what made you join the intelligence field? What are and the army? as as you know in whole yeah yeah i think um it will probably be a long answer but you know me well enough to yeah. like you're gonna have to shut me up as a new yorker i'll just, just love to talk but so it kind of starts with uh why i got in and so I'm, I'm from upstate new york originally like albany saratoga area and uh my family owns a home in lake george new york and so I spent the majority of my childhood there. And I didn't understand the Ranger significance of Lake George, New York, until after I joined the Ranger Regiment. And so I grew up, you know, in the lake right across from this giant mountain called Rogers Rock. I had no idea what it was. Wow. And I learned later that it was, this is the location in which Robert Rogers and the Rangers were born and fought you know, the French and Indian War and the Revolution. Yeah. And so as I got older and, and certainly into the regiment, I was able to kind of drive around the lake and see the historical markers, the birthplace of the Navy, no less, but all the, the, the crossing points for where Robert Rogers and his rangers would carry boats and, you know, the weapons and what they needed to from like George to like Champlain to conduct raids against the French. And so like there was a long ranger history where I grew up. I didn't even really know, or I think about during our changes of command, when yeah. all the theme belonged to um, uh, what's the last of the Mohicans. That's right. And so that was based on this, this actual fort, Fort Ticonderoga. And that's where I was. But so, yeah, from upstate New York, um, very blue collar family, didn't have a lot of money. Right. I remember distinctly remember like uh, the TV or electricity getting turned off every once in a while. My parents being like, Hey, find something to do or go outside yeah. and be like, okay, this is just part of life, you know? And, my father did construction, still does that. My mother was a real estate agent, have a younger brother, Dominic, who's now much bigger than me, but like, let's be clear, I'll still burn him down if I need to, you know? And so I, I grew up in athletics, first started, you know, with baseball and some other things, but really found a niche with hockey, which my parents had no business paying for, but they just yeah. put us first always. And so the sacrifices that we saw financially were for my brother and I to play these sports. And that was a really good collective look of like, Hey, this is what it's like to be a part of a team. 
And um, so that transferred all the way through school. So I did my undergraduate studies at Brockport University. It's a state school, relatively small in Western New York, just covered with snow. And I played hockey there for four years. And around my junior year, I was like, hey, I, like when I'm done with hockey, I could probably play at a, at a very low level professionally and make not enough money to really sustain myself. And so I'm looking for something much bigger to be a part of. And, you know, of course, when I was in the 11th grade is when 9-11 happened in the state of New York. I remember watching it specifically on TV and it always resonated. Not to the extent where some of the Rangers that you and I know were like, hey, I was I was signed up and on a bird the next day almost. But that always stuck with me. And so when I told my parents, I'm like, hey, I'm thinking about joining the military and specifically the army. At first, they were like, hey, absolutely not. We don't want to do that. You'll be treated like a number. And kind of the, the typical responses uh, that you may imagine from some parents, but I think they knew they weren't going to be able to control that decision in any way. And so after undergrad, I went to grad school at the University of Albany, lived in downtown Albany. I met my wife during undergrad. She was a softball pitcher at Brockport. And so we just kind of, you know, forced events together with the athletic department. We met and then she saw this hair and it was a wrap, you know? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, she's going to laugh at that slash hit me when she <laughs> hears this. But um, so she was with me during that, uh, that graduate school time. She completely supported me. She was a cardiac RN and a nurse in Albany while I went to grad school. And that's where I started two years of um, ROTC. At the same time, I was like, hey, I need something a little bit more to challenge myself athletically because I was done with hockey. It's all I knew my whole life. And so now I'm in ROTC, which is great, but uh, I just need a little bit more. So I started boxing and so started doing that. And after a while, I was like, okay, I may be good enough to maybe put my card into USA Boxing and maybe maybe start fighting. I was already sparring with some of these folks that were either pro or amateurs. And I was to me, I was like, hey, I'm getting punched in the face anyway. I might as well put a card in and actually fight. So I started doing that and fought in the Golden Glove circuit for a very short time at like 178 pounds, which I cannot naturally sustain in any way. So, you know, a little bit north of that, certainly am now. But that was great for the decision-making process in my mind. I did it less for the physical challenge and more for making decisions under pressure. You know, we tell our young leaders, always, hey, it's okay if you make the wrong decision. It's more important that you you identify when a, a decision needs to be made. And so that, for me, was instilled in pain, which is a great driver yeah. for making a decision. Never mind, you graduate to the right decision. So 2010 is when I commissioned as an intelligence officer. Uh, got, you know, right after commissioning, got married packed the car and from upstate New York, we were married in Lake George, New York and drove from Lake George to Sierra Vista, Arizona, which is the home of the Intel school for the army. And that's, on, that's on the border. And so it was completely yeah. across the country. So that was a wild experience. And then that's kind of, that's kind of where it started. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. A, so, and then in that, what led you to Intel? Um, a couple things. One, I thought I was going to be Jason Bourne, right? right. Like all, you know, like all Intel officers are like, Hey, I'll be in the army for about five or 10 minutes and then I'll get out. And I'll, I'll go work for whatever agency or whatever three letter. Yeah. You know? Um, and so it was always kind of a short term mindset, which I think is probably positive way to look at service is 
small increments instead of, Hey, here's where I want to be in 30 years. Going to You know, nothing goes to plan as you know. Right. Um, but that was my thought process to say, how do I convert this education to something I could use both inside and outside was right. my original thought. Yeah. So you join the army, you go to the Intel route, you do all your training there in Arizona, head to your first unit. What was your first unit? So my first unit was supposed to be the 82nd. Uh, and just kind of based on where I assessed as a cadet in the accessions process, I was afforded the opportunity to choose my branch and choose my duty station. And so through all the different counselings and things I did with, um, you know, the professor of military science or the PMS through the ROTC program, he's like, hey, you should be in an operational unit. They really tried to get me to go, you know, infantry, at least branch detail to get that experience. But they're like, you should go to a unit that we know is going to be a maneuver unit. That all changed, though, when I went to Bullock or basic officer leader course for listeners that don't know that abbreviation at Fort Huachuca in Arizona. And my first introduction to the Ranger Regiment was was there. And I'll never forget it because it was Sergeant First Class Lee Garcia. Oh, yeah. And I think at the time, Captain Jake Barton. Yeah. And it was those two that came with, you know, a, a small laundry list of other tier one units or tier two units, special operations units to say, hey, this is what you could potentially assess for. And I immediately gravitated to the men wearing the tan hats because of their quiet professionalism immediately. And so I went up to them right after the, the opening brief and it was Lee and I'm like, hey, tell me everything that you can and how do I assess? And so they assess at Bullock still uh, for a kind of the pipeline and transition process to say, hey, if you meet these gates, which are very deliberate, well thought out, both physical, um, mental, psychological, if you meet those gates, then you're selected to be a part of the pipeline. So when I went through that process and was selected, they're like, okay, um, you're going to go to Korea for a year. Oh. And, you, you know, you'll kind of cut your teeth in the overall army, get an understanding of what it's like to be a platoon leader or an AS2, assistant S2 at um, a larger conventional army unit before you come to the Ranger Regiment, which I thought was was a, a good plan. Of course, I wanted to go immediately. Yeah, you know, As soon as you assess, you're like, hey, I want to try to get to the varsity. But, uh, you know, I, I can tell you it, it was worth its weight in gold for many reasons. So I was assigned to the um, 304th MI Battalion, the coveted 304th <laughs> MI Battalion in Korea. And so I was at Camp Humphreys for a year I was supposed to be there unaccompanied, but I brought my wife unaccompanied, just paid my own dime because we were just married. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, Hey, this is probably not the good start, the best possible start to be like, Hey, I'm going to go to Korea for a year. You do your thing and I'll be back. There's, there's a time and a place when that needs to happen. I think in every specifically officer's career, but for this, I wasn't willing to assume that risk. And so brought, brought her over on my own dime. We didn't live on the installation. We lived off, we lived right downtown and Ungjong Ri, I think is the town near Pyeongtaek. And uh I'll never forget, like it, it was June of 2011, maybe 12. No, I think it was 11. And usually when you get there, you have to, what they tell officers is like, hey, you have to buy what's called a Korea car. You're only going to be here for maybe a year, maybe two years, throw a thousand dollars on a car, and then you can use that to kind of get yourself around. And so I do that. I go through the process. I pick up my wife after I go through the licensing process, we use public trans, which is amazing in Korea, right? So it's the first time that she has traveled internationally. First time I have lived internationally. 
So I pick her up and our first gate is, hey, I have this car. We need to bring it to the shop, have it worked and serviced. And then we can kind of use it and then move into our apartment. So it's June and it's like crazy humid. humid. It's like crazy humid. And so I'm, I'm in this body shop and I go to the fridge and I grab something that I think is water, right? It's a blue bottle. It says fresh on it in English. I'm like, yeah, it's got to be water. Did you ever, did you ever drink something so fast and so violently that you like, you almost purposely don't taste it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I do this and I'm like, I'm half bottle in and I put the bottle down and I taste it. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is soju. Yeah. <laughs> right. And soju, rice liquor. Yeah. It's not like it's regulated like Budweiser. Right. You know what I mean? You can expect a certain amount of alcohol per can or per bottle. But it's like I just drank half a bottle of rubbing alcohol and I'm like, all right, this is going to be bad. This is my wife's first day in, you know, a new country. So the time this car is done, I'm hammered. I'm like, I don't know, like my first interaction would be driving. And, you know, much like, you know, driving in other countries, it's not like driving in the U.S., right? Like you need to have a convoy brief. You need to have an escape route. You need to understand what's happening because it's not like lights are respected, right. you know, like, <laughs> When you're driving. Yeah. So the, the car comes out of the shop. They're like, Hey, you're good to go. I'm like, Jody, you gotta, you gotta drive this thing. It's only, it's only about two miles away from the body shop. So it's not like we're doing, you know, a significant drive. So she gets in the, she gets in the, the driver's seat, immediately puts it in reverse, backs up into the brick wall of the body shop. Then <laughs> I'm like, Hey, this is not, this is not a good start. This is not a good start. I'm not calling anybody. I'm not calling a commander be like, Hey, I'm your new Lieutenant. I'm, I'm drunk. I have a car. I brought my wife. But anyway, I'm like, hey, listen, get your wits about you because you, you have to throw yourself into an episode or a game of Mario Kart to get right. us home. Yeah. Like, tie on, let's go. And so long story short is we made it, obviously, but that was that was great. So that was the, kind of the first unit experience before heading to 175 with you. Oh, my gosh. Uh, you wouldn't have it any other way, though. That's a heck of a story for you you guys now, right? That you made it safely safely there. Yeah. Uh, um, so... When you came to the, came to the regiment, right? You obviously finished up your time in Korea. You came over. You did RASP or or RIP or whatever yeah. it was named at that moment, uh, yeah. and then uh, you came to the seventy fifth. So, when you first got to the seventy fifth, what were your big takeaways? Your differences you could see between conventional forces and the seventy fifth as, as as it relates to intelligence. Yeah, it was it was night and day. Night and day. It started with my RASP two experience and looking at the cadre of that course. Like, what a great introduction course to the Ranger Regiment. Like the, the pride that they take in that assessment process. I was so impressed that I felt that, like, you know, I was around giants. You know, it, and those cadre members. I had certain first at the time, certain first class Gendron. Yeah. Right. Right. So I'm like, okay, that person's not a human or a <laughs> right. robot. Right. And then um, Dave White was a cadre member as a sergeant first class. Didn't say a word the whole time, but just smoked us. And yeah. it was never. And I'm like, what, what is what is the deal with these guys? Sergeant Kip. Oh, um, right. And so my in that class with me, Tony Maine as a captain. Um, at the time, Master Sergeant Clappin. Uh -huh. Uh, ben Hunter of, of the Hunter brothers. Right. And he was, he was my Ranger buddy. I just grabbed his belt loop and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing, man. Like, just help me, you know, um, Nick Goshen, which was amazing. So in my, my room was me, 
Nick Goshen, who ended up being a career mentor of mine all the way through my regimental experience, Ben Hunter and Clappen. And so what, what a crew to go through that first experience with. And so they ushered me through that process. Never mind, like when you're done with that board, yeah, right? Like that board process was with both Colonel Evans, Evans is at the time, if you remember, Eddie Nolan was a certain major of 375. And I just remember I, I got undressed as you can, as you can imagine in that board to like, Hey, just let's, let's start this way. You know, Lieutenant Maravello, everyone around you is going to be smarter than you. Yeah. And you're coming in here as an Intel officer. And I'm like, Oh boy. Like the, the peer that I went to that course with was another intelligence officer that was also in the same brigade that I was in, in Korea, but he did not make it through. And, uh, you know, that was a challenge, right? Because I'm supposed to help him out through that process, try to do what I, I could. And, um, you know, I felt that in the rest board as yeah. well, but overall great experience. If, if you feel any, any better than you're the worst person ever, when you leave that board and you, the, then something went wrong, yeah. like it's supposed, it's supposed to humble you. And it, yeah. it absolutely did yeah. for me. But when I showed up to one seven five, the, just the story of those around you is immediately humbling. You know, I remember talking to Ev, doesn't matter the rank, doesn't matter the position. I remember walking around at one seven five and being like, I, I'm just absolutely surrounded by superheroes. And I, in what relatively seemed like a very small pond, which it is in the Intel community and the conventional Intel community and in Korea to kind of being put into this organization you know, and by that point, we've been doing plenty of searches, both Iraq and Afghanistan, to a well-oiled machine. I can tell you with more than reasonable certainty, I was contributing nothing, right? Like, I was contributing nothing but hard work yeah. to, to the organization. And so that's immediately what I picked up on. And then the first way to measure that, in my mind, was your physicality, like your physical presence and your physical performance. And I'm like, okay. So I know the first day they're going to try out old Marinello on a, on a PT test or a run or whatever else. And in the, in the two shop at the time, John Abel, Matt Ball, um, Ray Kadurka. Mm -hmm. So he was kind of my, the, the big brother of the shop. Yeah. yeah. I like that guy. I love that guy. Love him. Love, to this day. Love him. Yeah. And you know, he's like, Hey, we're going to go on a run, which I knew immediately was going to be his forte. Cause I'm mm -hmm. like, look at this guy. He's a tall drink of water. He yeah. could probably run a mile in four minutes. And he's going to break us off. And that's exactly what happened. And I'm like, here I am running probably a, an 11 something two mile at the time, but for a five mile run, I'm the last, I'm the last one. And that's when I realized I'm like, all right, I got to really tighten it up. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. Yeah. So I think on, on that, I, so, you know, I spent my whole career in the 75th, so I was in it my whole life. Right. So when you're in it your whole time, you don't, sometimes you don't see it, but when I had, you know, other NCOs or officers come in from other organizations, um, it, yes, the people were one aspect, but they the biggest thing, one of the other things they would always say is that the speed at which the organization is moving is yeah. they could not, they could, some people just could not keep up. And right. uh, I just would like your, your take on it, especially from the Intel perspective. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, that is absolutely accurate. And it was, it was tough for me to compare the Intel specific um, comparison between the two organizations I hadn't deployed in the conventional army. All of my deployments were through the regiment. And so I remember being a platoon leader more as a logistician and carer of people in the conventional army versus, hey, you're an AS2, you're a J2. Tell me what's going around or going on around the world right now. 
And I'm like, uh, I, I should probably read something, you know? Yeah. But I remember walking into like the three shop in, in 2012, you know, and um, who was in there? Nash. The Nash's were in there. Felino's were in there. Peterson's were in there. And I remember seeing Ruben, you know, for the first time and being like, I, I walked into the three shop. I'm like, is it, is it musty in here? Is it foggy or is it, is it supposed to be filled with like this weird smoke? And uh, am I in the wrong room? You know, but that is absolutely accurate. I was immediately thrown. I don't want to say thrown, but kind of assigned to, Hey, you're going to, you're going to help these companies with their, whether it be their injury planning, whether it be their, their company metal tasks and, and provide some Intel expertise. I learned quickly that I had absolutely nothing to offer them. <laughs> That's right. You know, until watching them for at least a, a jorts or a training cycle to be like, okay, here's how I can contribute to alleviate stress on the companies that are planning. But yeah, the speed and the op tempo yeah. was unbelievable to me. My first, my, my very first conversation I had with a field grade there was with Major Chung at the time. And he, and he kind of pulled up all the new officers, these new JOs. And they're like, all right, hey, welcome to the Ranger Regiment. Um, need your officer dues here to the XO here in the next five minutes. And then uh, at 6.30 p.m., we're going to see you at my house. You're going to take down a tree house from my backyard. You're going to move it to, I think it was Captain Anderson at the time, so he can have it for his kids. And I'm like, okay, all right, now I'm in the machine now. You know? <laughs> so a lot of folks are like, hey, that's, is that like a hazing event? I'm like, no, it's not a hazing event. It was more of like, hey, you're a part of this family now. Yep. You have obligations. Here's your place. Let's get this done. You know? Yeah. And so that was, to your point the speed is non-comparable. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, uh, you know, as I reflect and look back on it, I think it's the speed, you know, the people and then the accountability that you hold each other to. Right. And it's sometimes it's inadvertent. Uh, you know, if, I remember many times there's a lot of NCOs smarter than me that would be getting a brief from an intelligence officer and they would actually say, no, that's actually not what this target is about. That is not what this guy has done. That is not his POI. I've read all of his, all of these TIRs and these reports and you're wrong. And you're just kind of set back there and go, Oh, damn. So he kept his game up that Intel officer and everybody just elevated their game around one another, which really reminded me of sports, my sports background and basketball growing up. I'm sure some of the same with in, in there with hockey and you, but if there's somebody out there listening, they're in the early stages of their career, officer or NCO, they're an Intel guy, Intel gal, and they're thinking about going to the regiment. Um, what advice would you give them right now? Yeah, I'd say two things. One, be physically ready. You know, there, there's just your first impression is going to be a lasting impression. And so the best and easiest way to do that is to be physically ready. And I think that will help you to be mentally, cognitively ready, run required. And so that means having an idea of what's going on around the world, yeah. you know, read global events, have an idea of how that affects either our strategy or just the United States period, and then have some deliberate thought about how do you contribute that to the targeting process once you learn what that targeting process is. That That's not an easy thing to learn. Yeah. It probably takes a good, you know, six, eight months to really understand what you would be able to contribute there. Um, so that's what I would say to someone that's thinking about that organization is be physically ready have an understanding of what's going on around the world to help kind of drive your Intel process internally. Yeah. So throughout how, how many years did you serve Tony for you exited? Yeah, just, just under 10. And how many rotations to Afghanistan? Four. Uh, and uh, one of a couple or one or two of those were probably the extended tours, right? That we, that we did there. Yeah, that's right. I think uh, when we were talking, 
about what could potentially happen with uh, with North Korea and some some changes that were going on around the world when when Mattis came out. Yeah, I think there was an extension there. Yeah, uh, so I think the third of my four was that yeah. extension. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and for the listeners, right, people are familiar with the re- regiment. We Our deployments are a little different. Our cycle's a little different. We don't stay there as much. But I, w- I think it's safe to say somebody, an intel guy like you, uh, the number of hours that you spent in a jock in an operations facility is hard to would be hard for anybody in like working America to fathom the amount of hours an Intel officer has to put in to be successful. So you are very intimate with Afghanistan is probably an understatement. And then you get to see the way we exited Afghanistan and kind of the, how it went Uh, from somebody like you, who's, I mean, you were in the weed, you were probably, you were the, probably the best Intel officer I ever saw. Um, what, what was your emotions? What were your feelings when you see that's a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of hours you put into that country. And it's kind of, we just kind of left in my opinion. And there wasn't a lot there. What, what were your thoughts on it? Yeah, I think that's well said. Like it's tough. It's tough to, you know, pass judgment or opine on it when you're outside of it, you know, cause you know that if you're out of the community for 30 days, you might as well be out for a year that's or right. more. And so like, I'd like, I know that there are very capable leaders that made a decision to say X needs to happen. I will say it did seem hasty opposed to deliberate, you know, and I, those of us that spent the majority of their time in there knew that the Taliban, for example, was going to take over. It was, it's, it's considered an illegitimate government more than it is a terrorist organization, you know, and we can certainly debate that all day, but I think we knew that that was going to happen. The, the way that happened, the speed didn't sit well with me. And then the, the thought process of like the strategic implications of that, I didn't really understand either. And I thought back and I reflected on my time in Korea. I'm like, well, look how long we have been in Korea and what strategic advantage does that give us? Mm-hmm. And the South Koreans, which certainly benefited, we've all benefited from that relationship and us being there but I think about Afghanistan and that it's the only country that I can think of offhand that is directly connected and surrounded by America's largest and most strategic enemies. You know, it shares a border with Iran. Yep. It, it by way of some other countries, Uzbekistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, basically Russia, it shares a border that, that folks really don't appreciate with China. Right. And then strategic partners, I don't want to say just on paper, because I know it's it's more deliberate than that, but Pakistan and India, like where did we get UBL? Where were some of these major targets that we know were probably um either receiving support or were hiding in some of these these other countries, Pakistan and and uh not India, Pakistan specifically, but the, the relationship between those two countries, India and Pakistan, is so critical. Because historically, they've been at war for a very long time, and they're both nuclear powers. And so to me, it was I was surprised that we would withdraw from that location from instead of like a long-term enduring presence just for the strategic advantage. Yeah. Uh, I agree. I have a question. And like you said, it's not 
somebody made the best decision that they thought at the time. It's, I think that's the power of great leadership is you question even the great decisions. You question them to see if there could have been a better one or another alternative. And I was just curious kind of what your, what your thoughts were on it. So all those years, all that time in uniform, um, Intel, it's a little different. You're not out there blowing doors every night. Uh, you have a different relationship with the mission, right? Um, what was it? Uh, what was your best day you had in uniform? You know, it's you know, it's difficult. It's it's always easier to to answer the most difficult day. You know. Well, that's next. <laughs> it just stays with you forever. But the best day, like, it's hard for me to reflect individually, selfishly. Of course, I could say Ranger School graduation was a major milestone. You know, yeah. I was thirty pounds underweight. I looked like a chewed piece of bubble gum, and <laughs> I met, at that time it was Lee Garcia again. So everywhere throughout my regimental career, Lee was there to be like, "Hey, you done well, but you just started. Right. Hey, you did this well, but you just started." Um, and so that was that was amazing to me. I would say some of the best days I had as a commander in, in the Ranger Regiment, which is one of the greatest honors I think you could have to be in a command team. And that organization was calling the parents of my Rangers. What a cool experience it was just to see where they come from. And I remember doing that over a couple months as we would receive new privates, you know, and then overall, I think, you know, the best experience was watching those that I had purposely recruited as a bullet commander for my first command and brought them over to the Ranger regiment mm -hmm. and then identifying the day and time, or even down to a brief to be like, all right, I could probably say I've contributed to this hopefully in a positive way, or maybe it's just a laundry list of things that I shouldn't have done that they have now learned, but watching your junior leaders or your young officers and realizing that they're, they're better than you are. Yeah. Is is like that was my point to be like all right that 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 was my best day you yeah, know yeah and obviously flip side of that coin what's the most challenging day or the one you look back on and wish you could have done something different or just it just kind of sticks with you yeah I would say no question this was during my transition period um, so it was I was a pallbearer for Augie oh yeah yep I was a pallbearer for Augie and his and his daughters it was miserable um, and it was terrible to be a part of that but I was completely honored to say, Hey, I, I want to be here for that, you know? And so that was my last day in my, that was my last day in uniform before. Oh, taking that's purple. tough. That's tough. You know? But I was able to do it with folks that I knew for a long time, like, uh, Jojo cop, you know, he was also a Paul bearer. He was in my first RASP two class. And so like that, that was super important to me, but that was, I would say that was probably about my low yeah. as you can have it, yeah. you know? Uh, uh, yeah, that's a tough, that's a tough, uh, last time in uniform there. And I understand. So that perfect segue there to your transition. So, uh, it's uh, the military's in kind of a, a transition still. I think we're moving past Afghanistan and things are kind of changing, but, uh, there's still a lot of people mid career, right. That in six to 14 year mark that are sitting there going, I don't know if I'm going to stay in or if I'm going to get out. And you were about that, you know, you're in that mid career, you know, do I, go there and get the pension and the, everything that comes with that? Or do I hang it up? And you, you chose to hang it up, which I know is not, it's not an easy choice for, for anybody. Um, what led you to your, what led you to transition and out of service? Yeah, it's a good one. I still get, I still get some flack for it, both from myself and from others that are in, they're like, Tony, you're at the 10 year mark. What are you doing? Right. You know, just ride this thing out. Um, and I'm like, well, so the sequence of events that kind of happened were 
you know, this, I don't intend for this to be a sob story because a lot of military families do this infinitely better than we did. And they do it with a level of grace that's commendable. Is that like, you know, my son was, was still fairly young. And I remember my wife calling me while we were training. So that was, I don't want to say the worst part, but that was the most difficult. It wasn't why you're deployed. That's why you got in. You know, my my wife and I were together before I joined the army, so she knew. I'm like, hey, I'm I'm joining to go. That's the end state here, you know. But it was when we were not deployed, when we were training. You're still not home, right? You're at the three letter agencies. You're jumping. You're doing this. You're supporting X, and so you're still not home. And so my son left school, and they had a father son event, and you know, kind of the cadre of the school and the teachers were like, hey, where's your dad? We can you know, we're going to do this father son event. And he's like, yeah, I don't, I don't have a dad. He's not around. And I'm like, all right, that's not going to be me. Yep. That, that was kind of the line in the sand to be like, all right, what, what are we really doing here? Or you see, in my mind, you see some of these brigade and above commanders kind of take command with their family. But when they leave command, no one is sitting to their left or their right. And you're like, all right, what's the cost here? You know, when you're throwing a baseball or you're throwing a football with your son or daughter, and they can't throw it. And you're like, well, here I am. Like, selfishly, you reflect. And you're like, I did this hockey thing. I did this boxing thing. I did this ranger thing. Um, but, like, here is this mini-me that's not a re- true reflection of me. Like, what do I owe that person? What do I owe my child versus yeah. owe some others? So that was kind of the, to me, that's when it, it started to sink in. And then, um, you know, I was honored by being selected below the zone to major. So a year ahead of my peers and it kind of it felt like it kind of forced me in a corner and i'm like okay so if i do go forward i'm going to go to another school for a year and then i'm going to move again to another duty station another unit and i'm like you know i've moved seven times in nine years is that what we really want to do you know and and wife's credit and she's like you tell you tell me what you want to do and i'll support you and so i'm like i was hoping to lean on you as a crutch to say hey you should do it to make it an easier decision for me but because she's, you know, as you know, spouses are more of a ranger than really we are. Yeah. Like, hey, you do what you need to do, and I got your back. Yeah. Um, just thought that uh, based on my, you know, performance and just experiences in the army, it was like, you know, am I? Could I be good at anything else? I, I'm not sure. And so it was a real gamble. And I was like, hey, let me just try this and see yeah. what works out. And I think that answer is still up, or that question is still up in the air for me. But yeah. um, that was kind of what led to the decision. Yeah, I don't, uh, it's, uh, and I don't want to downplay anybody out there that's in a service industry or a truck driver or whatever. They all, the sacrifice between family and work is, is something, but there is something to be said about the military. And when you're part of a team and you have loyalty to team and you have loyalty to family and it's, you just, it's, you don't want to let anybody down. Right. And right. it's, it's, it can really tear you up inside, uh, trying to people please everybody. Uh, and, and it's, it's not an easy choice, but I think at the end of the day, you just got to sit down with your spouse, hopefully, and line up, write it out, write out your values, you know, and make your decision right. based on your values. And, and, uh, it, it's hard, it's difficult. And it's something I think I'll question forever. you right. Could I have been a star major? Yeah. How, what, would I have been good? I, I, I know it's a question I'll always have, right. It's a question I'll yeah. always have, but I had a very similar conversation with, uh, with us, with my son. Right. And I, I, I took the, took the same route you did, um, in your transition, what's your, what were your biggest, I mean, there's a lot of lessons learned, but is there something you look back and you say, man, I wish I would have, but I didn't do. 
Yeah, I'll say I was impressed by the transition process that the Army provided me. You know, I think that when you start having those conversations, you usually start talking a lot to like the barracks lawyers, you know, and you're like, hey, you want to try to maximize that money? Here's what you got to do. They're like, well, hold on, you know, and, you know, even previous generations, you got to look at, right? So some of those folks and those administrators that work in that organization or your family members that may have been service members, they're like, hey, the VA didn't take care of me you know, take whatever you can that they'll give you. And so I try to go in there with some type of a level of grace to be like, Hey, but my first goal is not to defraud the government right. and tell them that I need X, Y, or Z. I just was like, Hey, here's this packet that I've someone has been keeping for me over the last 10 years, you know, yeah. and put it on the table. And they're like, yep, here's your assessment. You know, here's your monthly, whatever it is. And here's your disability rating and all those things. And I thought it was a pretty, personal experience that was much easier than people made it. Yeah. The, the paperwork is miserable, but you are part of the government, you know, some of those things are going to be like going to the DMV. You got to expect that. And so I would say that my transition process, like just the process of, of filing that UQR, which is basically your resignation and, and getting out, that part was a little bit difficult, right? So you have to face your leaders right? And be like, hey, listen, I'm, I'm thinking about this. Don't, you know, you don't want them to think less of you. And here's why I'm thinking of that. And the overall and immediate support mm-hmm. that I got after I kind of explained my thought process and then working with the VA and SFL tap to get out was, was, was not painful for me. Yeah. It was, it was relatively easy. So I think if you just go in there humble, yeah. uh, which is more difficult you know, coming from the Ranger Regiment, I think, for a couple different reasons, right? Because, you know, you're told you're the best of the best and you work with the best of the best. And so you expect individualized personal treatment. But uh, overall, it was it was a good experience. Yeah, I think the, the key, you just, you got to own your transition. There's not going to be some team leader, squad leader, platoon sergeant there to when you get stuck to either kick your ass through to the next gate or lead you through it, whatever you might need. You might need different types of motivation at the time. You really got to take ownership of it. And if you do, it's kind of, it's, I don't want to say it's simple, but there's a process. Close. It's there. It's a process is there. You, you just got, you just, you just have to do it. And then when you're looking at your next career, um, what, what were you thinking? What were you looking at? What led you to what you're, you know, where you're, I mean, you've obviously advanced and where, from where you started at, with Amazon now, but what, what led you to that organization? That's a great, that's a great question. I, I thought when I was upon leaving or even thinking about leaving the army, I was like, Hey, I should probably just naturally go into some type of three letter agency mm-hmm. and to some type of Intel work. And I went through that wicket. I went through the, the hiring process, the assessment for uh, at least one of those organizations. And then I came to the realization after getting through it and then being told like, okay, here's the next step. We kind of just kind of do this administrative actions. And then we figure out where you're going to be stationed around the world. And I'm like, okay, um, I think I'm lying to myself. You know, and more importantly, I'm probably lying to my family. So I'm telling the army and I'm telling my wife, I'm going to get out to spend more time with them and just try something new. When in reality, I'd be like, hey, I'm, I'm still getting on a bird and I'm still going to be gone for X amount of time. So am I lying to myself and, and the Army? The answer to, in me, to me was yes. And so I'm like, all right, well, let's look at something else. And there's a ton of different Fortune 500 companies that have a military transition program. I was introduced to Amazon's through Ray Fuller. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. So he was part of this uh, program that Amazon still has called the Pathways Program. They try to target MBA students and uh, military leaders. And so he had already gone through that process. And so I'd stayed in contact with him from, from ACO, if I remember right, from our first deployment. And I'm like, hey, what are you doing now? And he's like, hey, if you want to come over here, I think this is a pretty good program. Here's generally what they do. And, and he's the one that opened the door for me. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in your, in your transition, how long has it been now already? Yeah, it's been three years and some change already. I can't believe it. Uh, What's, what's been your biggest surprise about the, about the transition, about the difference between military and, uh, you know, civilian life? Yeah, that one is like, we could talk for days on that. Uh, I will say, I I, I like still wake. It's, it's pretty lonely if I'm honest. Yeah. Like, um, I I don't think number one, as far as the, the satisfaction from what you do at work the negative side, I would tell folks that are transitioning, I was like, you're, you're likely not going to experience a more fulfilling job in your life. You know, how do you compare what you've done in the Ranger Regiment to what, whatever it is you think you're going to do outside? Um, the, the other large, you know, kind of uh, thing to keep in contention is leadership appreciation. You, you don't appreciate almost anything until you no longer have it, right? right. And so I, I just reflect uh, all the time on the decision-making process and, you know, the grace and the leadership of some of the decisions that were made by leaders I, I, were, I was exposed to and worked with every day and compare that to what I see now or just overall in the business world. And they're in co- completely non-comparable. You know, yeah. leadership definition is different for sure. Yeah, and then uh, so you're you're in the leadership space, right? And with Amazon, correct? Yeah. So I, I spent the first two years in the operation. So you know, <laughs> think of think of. I just try to get to the bottom line up front. You know, so like someone tell me what's going on. What are we going to be doing? Right. And, and kind of the 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 bottom line was, hey, this is a 2020 version of Laverne and Shirley, my man. <laughs> you know, you're, you're you're moving boxes. Um, and you have a lot of really talented folks around you. There's a ton of people there. It's a kinetic environment. And so that's kind of our bailiwick, right? right? We're like, I could, I could, I could lead folks through ambiguity when things get hard. That's where I feel comfortable. Yeah. And so I experienced that in spades at Amazon, especially during COVID, yeah, oh, yeah. right? Like while the rest of America and, and every fortune 500 and every company was like, Hey, we don't know what to do with this. I was like, okay, I, I feel comfortable with like looking forward, looking at the calendar instead of the clock. Let's lead our people. Let's not lead the process. Uh, and so that was good for, for two years. But, uh, and then I saw an opportunity to be a part of their actual leadership development and training uh, component of the company. And I was like, okay, this is, this is where I think I'm of the best utility and value is trying to take the lessons that I've learned in leadership throughout the last 10 years and bring them to, to people that deserve it too, yeah. you know? Yeah. So. so with that, and in, in that, I, I like, what's your definition of leadership now that you've been civilian side and, uh, and the military side, is it different? Has it remained the same throughout? Yeah, I think it's the same. I think it's gotta be the same. It's um, to me, it's, you know, leaders create influence and purpose and people. Yeah. And like, I try to get that as short as I possibly could, because I don't think there's any fat to that definition, you know, 
creating as in it should be, it's more of an art than it is a science, right? You know that you have to mold that based on the organization that you're in, the people that you're leading, um, influence, meaning anyone can kind of provide you that influence. You provide an example just now about, you know, an NCO kind of pushing back on an Intel officer. And I almost thought you were talking about me and maybe you were, because I remember this is the most memorable experience I have of the Ranger Regiment. It was in ACO. They call me down. I think Michelson, Dave Michelson was the XO at the time. And they're like, hey, we're going to head to this individual uh, outstation for this next rotation. So we want your assessment. Like, what do you think we need to be targeting? And so I went down there like, okay, I'm an Intel officer. I got If I say a bunch of big words, like this is going to be good, you know? And so I remember them very professionally just looking at me, one, like a piece of meat. And they're like, who is this, you know? And then afterwards, you know, who came up to me at the time, it was uh, Staff Sergeant Decker. Oh, oh, yeah. Yep. And so imagine having some type of intellectual conversation with him, not knowing his background. And I'm like, yeah, here's what I think. And if we do these things in the fluvial terrain, and if we target this way, and he's kind of like, he's being very respectful the whole time. And at the end, he's like, well, you know, I here's what I think. And then his answer was just 10 times better than mine, like not even close. Like, I'm like, hey, what the hell is your story, man? Can you tell me what the deal is? And he's like, yeah, you know, uh, I was working on Wall Street for 9-11 after I was a Division One squash player at Princeton. And I decided that once 9-11 happened, I'm going. And I'm like, okay, well, I mean, how do you beat that story? You know, I'll just be here and I'll learn from you, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, um, so I, I was, you know, creeping your LinkedIn. And uh, something that kind of resonated with me, it's a uh, quote here, able to deliver results through teaching, coaching, and listening. And I want to focus on the word listening there. How important is listening for a leader? The most, the most, right? Because I think a lot, a lot of times people focus and associate competency with rank or position. Terrible, terrible mistake. Right. You should never do that yeah. for the reason. One one example of the 100 that I have received over my time. But, um, you know, I what I wrote about and what I try to enforce is you have two ears and one mouth. And so you should be listening twice as much as you're speaking. And so you learn so much more about an organization, an individual problem or a project just by listening to what others have to say that will, it will help guide your decision-making process that will help drive ownership. I think in those that are actually going to do the work, yep. which is a delineation that not a lot of people I think re respect or remember is that you'll have tons of level of leadership that have a great idea, like really good guidance, but it's done at a 30,000 foot view and they're not actually moving towards the target. Yep. You know, yep. that provide that perspective? It's like, okay, they have the idea. It's their ownership. How do I support? How do I resource and manage them to, for them to be successful through listening? And that's what I've learned. I've learned that the hard way, yeah. of course, like most of us. But yeah, yeah, I think it's important. And I just, I, uh, I think listening definitely is the most underrated of all of them. I, I think, in, you know, in my own career, I didn't really flip the switch and become a better leader or get recommended for other jobs until I learned to listen. I, I would find when I was in meetings, I was always trying to think of something to say that would make me seem intelligent in the moment. But then I said, why don't I just listen to these intelligent people and learn? And then the time will come when it's my turn to speak, but I need to listen more than I need to worry about what others might think about me or, or prove myself. And I just think it's such an underrated thing in, in leadership, in, in your marriage. Uh, it's, 
you got to set and you, I listen to a four-year-old sometimes, right? And I just let him talk and I don't try to correct him or, 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 you know, get away from the conversation. I just listen to him and I learned so much from that little four-year-old about him. So if you're out there listening, if you're listening, be better listeners would be my, uh, my number one leader advice at whatever echelon you are, right? do spend more time listening. Just like Tony said there, I agree. And and then, just real quick, I, th- I think about the, the leaders that you remember the most, I think are the ones that do that the best. Yeah. You know, I think about, I think about Dave White, you know, is he probably won't say anything until you ask him. Right. And then when, when you do ask him, you're going to get an answer that you didn't expect. <laughs> and it's way better than what you could have provided or clap is another great example. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that brings So you wrote a book. Right, you went the Navy SEAL route. You wrote a book, uh, but uh, all joking aside, I think more Rangers should probably write books. Uh, you don't have to go out there and break opsec and be search the glory. But uh, what we did the last twenty years was very important. Uh, sometimes I don't think we're we're. I've said it many times. We are more than quiet professionals. We're silent professionals. And uh, at the end of the day, that's why I joined the military. Is because I read stories and I heard stories and I watched movies that were about stories about uh, Rangers in World War II and, and Vietnam and, and all that stuff. So uh, even though you're, you're not specifically in that book, it's about leadership and it's probably one of the funniest reads that you'll have out there. What led you to writing that book? Uh, can you just give a little background on it? Yeah, it, it had everything to do with my transition and, and kind of finding a healthy way to cope. You know, I had thought about, like we talked a little bit about being a pallbearer for for Augie. So, I, you know, I did that. And then my, I felt like my next meeting was at w- within a fortune 500 and we were talking about risk and the conversation was around uh, safety and an employee had been injured at work and they, they uh, injured their toenail. And we had talked about how serious it was and how we need to be better. And I'm just in my mind, I'm like, Hey, am I having, is this like a PTSD event? Is it like, what's happening in my mind? But like, the, the only thing I could think about was here I am in a deployed environment where I'm sitting directly to the right of, co- of a commander that's making decisions that are either ending or prolonging people's lives, right? In a matter of seconds with no sleep whatsoever. And then if and when things go wrong, that commander knows that they have the worst phone call to make possibly of all time. And I'm like, and I think about fixed wings. I think about TFTs. I think about our training events and watching dogs and lip landings and jumps. And I'm like, I I just see risk in my mind. I think a little bit differently than the folks. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. That's what kind of drove it. Yeah. Yeah. And if you haven't, if you haven't picked up Tony's book out there, it's leadership, dark matter. It's a, it's good. It's a good, if you know, Tony, it's, great because it just makes uh, i told him when i was reading it i could hear he was it was like he was reading it to me because i just spent so much time with him i hear his voice and in in those stories and uh the soju story is in there and it's only it's one of 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 many and it's a great read so now you're your transition uh you you transition to hopefully achieve a little more work-life balance um um how is that going what's work-life balance look like uh, on the other side of the uniform yeah, it was it was easier in the beginning uh, because I deliberately had that in mind to be like, hey, the, the work life balance I need to manage personally, and so 
I found myself like at sporting events with my children and I'm like, I, I don't know what to do. Like, do I become a coach? Do I like, am I yelling at other parents? And I'm like, I, I would get into some arguments with other parents just because we're passionate about everything and we want to win, you know? And so like, I saw a win as, Hey, I'm at this event. I may be yelling at another dad or something like that, but like, this is me being present, right. you know? And right. that was really cool. Um, but I find it to be life is much easier. I would argue. Um, it's harder to let go of work because you just want to be the best that you can in anything that you do. Right? You, you purposely spend more hours than others do in their work because we just take pride in, in trying to do well. Um, but I will say the work-life balance is, is good. It's very healthy. I'm, I'm, I put my kids on the school bus in the morning. Yeah, me too. When they get, I'm there when they get home. And I could say with more than reasonable certainty in my previous life, that was, that was not the case. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Tony, as we come in and we kind of land this plane, there's a question that I forgot that I always ask up front, but I'll ask it at the end is uh, what's your definition of vulnerability? Yeah, I thought about this one. It's difficult. And I thought about how do I not provide a canned answer to this, you know? And I'm like, well, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about vulnerability, especially in leadership? And I'm like, you think about weakness. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, well, that's, that, that's not the case in leadership. Like to me, vulnerability in leadership and overall is do you have, you know, the humility and the acknowledgement, self-awareness of, of your own opportunities to be influenced by other folks, regardless of rank and, and position, Yeah, you know? So especially within the Ranger Regiment where you may think you're going to show up and you're going to be an immediate contributing member. You're going to, you're going to be able to provide your guidance and people are going to execute. Um, acknowledging that you don't know a lot and that there are folks in the organization that are going to lead you. Yeah and provide you that regardless of your position is the way to, to go about it in my mind. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. Tony, amazing talking to you. It's great to see you. Uh, I'm glad you're doing great things out there. Uh, I, you know, I, I was going to, I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to say, it. you know, Tony, he made this like, like any Intel officer, right? When you're going to hit the target, oh, it's going to be a big target. We'll hit jackpot. Touch. It's kind of like this podcast. Tony's like, how about I fly down there? We do this in person. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. And I think he's flying down here. He's going to do it and text him. He's like, I got to do it virtual, brother. So I, I just like you to, I'm glad you stayed in Intel officer tradition, letting down an NCO, you know, <laughs> building it up. And, uh, and, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, we still got a great podcast here. I appreciate it. I love you like a brother. Um, yep. For all you guys out there listening, do all the stuff, like, share, subscribe, and then go out there and check out Tony's book. Be a great stocking stuffer for a leader that's, that's, uh, that you know in your family or friends. So thanks, Tony. I appreciate it. I appreciate you, man. Love you. I thank you for everything you've done. You've been a huge influence on me and more so that the NCO Corps of the regiment has been my guiding factor. I don't want to say guiding like that sounds a little too much, but I know I just said it. So thank you very much. I am absolutely honored to be here. I hope that we stay in touch and I would love if we could get together, you know, physically, it'd be awesome if, you know, after this, your podcast continues to soar and it'd be the driving function for the regiment to say, Hey, if you're in the Ranger Regiment from this time to this time, you're going to meet here. Or let's go yeah. up to Rock Rock as an organization yeah. and go reflect being right. a Ranger. 
Correct. That'd be awesome. So thank yeah. you, dude. Yeah, you're right. And you know, I was about to close out there, but I have it written down here. It was something you said at Rangers stay together. Is uh, yeah. it's something we're not good at when we transition out. We're not we kind of all go our separate ways and do that. So hopefully we can do something uh in the future here uh, um and and keep the community. But uh thanks again and uh everybody else, we'll catch you guys on the next episode. Thank you. Appreciate you. All right, dude. That was awesome. Yeah.